Welcome to Tales of History and Imagination. Eccentric Tales from History by Simone Whitlow. Hey all, I'm doing something a little different with this episode. In the early days of the blog, historyandimagination.com, I wrote a piece on the Altamont Free Concert, December 6, 1969. It was a concert in which anything and everything which could go wrong, did go wrong. The show culminated with the killing of a young man named Meredith Hunter. It was one of those pieces I get to do sometimes, where I started off thinking I understood what went down, and came out the other side with a radically different view on what happened on the day. I'll save my thoughts on that. I will do a podcast episode on Altamont at some point. But anyway, after that, after I'd published the piece, a friend asked me if Altamont was kind of the end of the 60s as we imagine it, hippies and free love and everything. Where did hippies at least begin? I had a bit of a look round, and it seemed to me, beyond the scene around the Red Dog Saloon in Virginia City, Nevada, and Ken Casey and the Merry Pranksters, or the Beatniks, Well, you can go back as far as you like, really, and find people with a bit of a hippie vibe about them. Most messianic figures, whether it be Lao Tzu, Mazdak, who was a uh, Persian Zoroastrian priest, Siddhartha Gautama, the the Buddha, Jesus, for that matter, philosophers like Epicurus or Pythagoras, um, they all had something of a hippie about them. Diogenes, well, History on Fire's Daniele Bolelli had him pegged as the first punk rocker, and I can see that. But I'm putting in my rival claim for the hippies. St. Marius, the stonemason who established the country of San Marino? Well, yeah, maybe. Similar spirit. The Marymount community of 17th century Quincy, Massachusetts. Definitely a similarity. But there was one group, as I had a bit of a dig round and a look into this, that just endlessly fascinated me. They owed much to William Pester, the hermit of Palm Springs a follower of Germany's Lebensreform movement, and a nature mention, nature boy, who settled into the American wilderness in 1916, having fled from the German draft almost a decade earlier. Based largely in Laurel Canyon, Southern California, the nature boys had more than a passing resemblance to the hippies of the 60s. One nature boy in particular fascinates me, not least of all because he wrote one of the most haunting songs ever. This week's tale begins with a man in a suit, trekking through the wilderness, calling out for someone at the top of his lungs. The year is 1947. Up front, there was a meeting very like this, but this specific part is largely a work of my imagination, a plot device to move the tale on. I, possibly wrongly, imagine him middle-aged, a little out of breath, and more than a little pissed off he's had to ruin a nice pair of shoes on this errand. His instructions, and I do paraphrase, you'll know him when you find him. He looks like Jesus. Oh, and he may be running round buck naked when you find him. He does that a lot. The man in the suit, an employee of Capitol Records, is trekking through the hills of Mount Lee, California, through Griffith Park. For weeks, Capitol have been looking for this messianic-looking figure. One imagines no ruined loafers, angry mountain lions, or nudity is going to stop this mission. He's looking for a man, a very strange, enchanted man. Today our man in the suit will find him. Our mystery man enters the tale following a Nat King Cole concert at California's Lincoln Theatre earlier in 1947. 
Cole had yet to go solo, yet to break the colour barrier. As part of a Nat King Cole trio, the future crooner was still a proto-R&B musician, a decent vocalist and an incredible piano player. In attendance that night, a long-haired white man, also a piano player, who managed to blag his way into the after-party. At several points in the night, the man tried to catch Cole's attention, but was rebuffed at every advance. As a last-ditch effort, he handed his payload, a crumpled-up piece of paper, to Cole's valet. The valet subsequently handed it on to Cole's manager, who eventually passed the paper on to Cole himself. It was a song. Mystical, prototypically exotica, haunting and otherworldly. It struck Nat King Cole as something special. He started performing it in his live sets. Now as crowds, and you do have to figure we are talking about a time when music was primarily made for dancing to, listening was very secondary. Well, they listened, and they went wild for it. The song was titled Nature Boy. Not unlike Percy Shelley's Ozymandias, the protagonist meets a wise traveller from a distant land. The men speak for some time, and the wise man, the nature boy, gives him the following advice. The greatest thing he'll ever learn is just to love, and be loved in return. The music was brooding and exotic. It was serious modern classical music. It had a Yiddish folk music sort of a lilt to it. It was haunting and poetic. Nat King Cole knew he absolutely had to cut this track. But who was this mysterious long-haired stranger? With all the copyright and publishing red tape to go through to make this record, an all-points bulletin was sent out to everyone who knew everyone in Hollywood. After some detective work, they worked out the man was Eden Arbez. Deliberately, if you're reading this, in lowercase, because Arbez believed only two words should ever be capitalised, God and Infinity. Arbez was born George Alexander Abel in 1908 to a Jewish father, a Scottish mother, and was promptly abandoned into a Jewish orphanage in New York. Aged around 10, he was adopted by the McGrew family of Canute, Kansas. As a young man, he joined a dance band, I presume that means a swing orchestra. They were in vogue at the time. First as a pianist, then later as a band leader. In 1941, he moved out to Los Angeles, where he found work as a pianist in a raw foods restaurant and supermarket in Laurel Canyon, the Eutrophion, a shop established in 1917 by John and Vera Richter. The Richters had come by their beliefs at John Harvey Kellogg's Battle Creek Sanitarium and were firm believers in the health benefits of eating only raw fruit and vegetables. The Eutrophian was a hub for many alternative lifestyles in Laurel Canyon, particularly the early bodybuilders who had a gym nearby, socialists and the Richters themselves being vocal supporters of senator, trade unionist, activist, and 1912 Socialist Party presidential candidate Eugene Debs, and the Nature Boys. Arbez soon gravitated towards the latter. A group of proto-hippies, living mostly in caves and some very rustic cabins in the Palm Springs area, the Nature Boys followed the teachings of William Pester, the hermit of Palm Springs. Pester himself, a follower of German 19th century back-to-nature movements, particularly the nature mention. They wore their hair long. They grew big bushy beards. Whenever possible, they preferred to go nude ate only raw fruit and vegetables, studied Eastern spiritualism, 
and believed in the importance of casting off the restraints of the modern world for a simpler life, more aligned with nature. Pester himself would pass on in 1963, before his philosophy really took off in the summer of love. Eden Arbez was, indirectly, an acolyte of Pester's. He joined the movement in 1941, while Pester was in jail. He was accused first of being a German spy in 1940, and when that didn't stick, jailed for having sex with a minor, and kept there till 1946. But back to the man in the suit. I imagine him all out of breath, clutching a contract which now looks every bit as crumpled as the paper Arbez passed to Cole's valet. He eventually caught up with Eden Arbez, as it was clothed in a white toga and camping out under the first L in the Hollywood sign. Arbez granted his permission to record the song, which though semi-autobiographical, he explained, was also a tribute to William Pester. In August 1947, Nat King Cole cut the track. The finished product was incredible. Capital, for all their effort, killed the track. It just didn't jive with the smooth, pop-crooner image they were creating for Nat King Cole. However, in 1948, fate threw a spanner in Capitol's works. The American Federation of Musicians, led by James Petrillo, went on strike. Petrillo was a trumpeter who had become a music union organiser in 1920 and president of the union in 1940. He'd called a strike which lasted the better part of two years in 1942 over recording royalties for session musicians, which ultimately was successful, but had some far-reaching consequences. Quick sidebar on that, it was a factor in the demise of the big swing band era, alongside American entry into World War II and rationing of petrol, which took a lot of these big band tour buses off the road. It was one of those things. As such, it was a building block in the creation of smaller groups, many of which morphed into rock and roll groups over time. It recast the singer as the band lead. Radio stations were forced to go outside their usual repertoire, leading to boom times for country and western and rhythm and blues groups, along with others. It also sadly meant the first couple of years of bebop was never recorded. End of sidebar. I guess the things which need to be understood about the 1942 to 1944 strike. It started as the union recognised the musician got paid every single time they performed live, but only got paid once to record. Their work would then get played thousands of times on commercial radio stations. Millions, potentially, on jukeboxes, or on record players in people's homes, for which they would go completely unpaid. The strike was successful and secured a royalty of around 2.5% of the take to be split amongst the musicians. The strike of 1948, which ran for 11 months, was of a similar nature, but aimed squarely at broadcasters. The history of television is a tale for another day, but this was timely. In 1947, television was an odd thing. Only a few thousand people tuned into it. From 1949, however, TV stations really began to proliferate, and the format really started taking off in 1951. In both strikes, record companies stockpiled massive amounts of music beforehand, and before the strike came to an end, they all had to release songs they had mothballed earlier. Nature Boy was one such track, getting its release on March 29th, 1948. It shot to number one with a bullet, stayed there for seven weeks. It was just the crossover hit Nat King Cole needed, introducing him to white audiences. 
this was also a mixed blessing, as it also brought him the attention of racists who burnt crosses in his front yard, but ultimately it elevated him to superstardom. Eden Arbez made around $20,000 in royalties, somewhere in the order of $200,000 by today's standards. He gave around half this money to his friends, and very likely lost the rest in 1951, when a composer named Herbin Yablikov took him to court for plagiarism. He claimed Arbez stole his song, and sorry, I am going to mispronounce this, Shevig Mein Hearts, which translates to Hush My Heart. In court, Arbez stated the melody came to him, quote, as if angels were singing it, end quote, while camping out in the mountains. Yablikov dryly replied, the angels must have bought his record then. The song was later covered by everyone from Frank Sinatra to Rick Astley. Yes, he who is never going to give you up, let you down. George Benson laid down a funky take on the song. Marvin Gaye's cover is ethereal. David Bowie recorded a solid version for the soundtrack to Moulin Rouge. Tony Bennett and Lady Gaga recorded a version. One could imagine Arbez's shock had he lived that long, to see Gaga in her meat dress, avowed raw food vegetarian that he was. For some time, Eden Arbez was a celebrity. He released his own albums, which fit into that growing exotica genre, popular with people who felt too old to love rock and roll, and just a wee bit too cool to keep buying old Blue Eyes' albums anymore. Journalists, just like our man in the suit, went out of her way to find and interview this messianic figure who'd scored his monster hit on his first try. In these interviews, Arbez often extolled the virtues of living the nature boy lifestyle. Eden Arbez, Arb to his friends, lived a simple life, largely in accordance with nature, till his death in a car crash in 1995. The great pre-Raphaelite artist, iconoclast and writer William Morris, a man with somewhat hippie leanings himself, once wrote, History has remembered the kings and warriors because they have destroyed. Art has remembered the people because they created. Tales of art and imagination this week? Yeah, I'll gladly take that. See you back in two for more new tales of history and imagination. Thanks for listening. This has been Tales of History and Imagination. All episodes written by me, Simone Whitlow. Produced and all music, yours truly. Visit the blog historyandimagination.com. Links to social media and liner notes. We have a Facebook and a Twitter, even a Pinterest. We also have a Patreon if you wish to help support the show and keep it going. If you have enjoyed the show, please leave a positive review. We'll be back in two weeks' time for more tales of history and imagination.